Amen. Lord, what a blessing to think that we are your beloved, that you love us so much. We're so unworthy, and yet you are so gracious and so merciful and so loving. Lord, I pray now as we go to your word that you'd be our teacher. Give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us tonight. And Father, I do pray that it would be the word of God, not the words of man. And man, decrease your spirit would increase that you would be glorified. And Lord, we do lift up the victims of the hurricane, Lord. And we just ask in Jesus' name, Lord, that you would use even this for your glory. That, Father, through this tragedy and through this difficulty, Lord, I pray that many would be drawn unto you. I pray for us as the church that, Lord, we would be able to minister to them in any way we can. And, Father, for the believers who are back there, Lord, strengthen them and use them in a mighty way. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for tonight. May you be glorified in all that happens here. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Hey, uh, on that note, as you turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 33, looking at the second half of 33, and Lord willing, we'll see, we may finish up Deuteronomy tonight. Um, there is a Calvary Chapel, we got a, uh, an email from CCOF, Calvary Chapel Outreach Fellowships, that there's a Calvary in Atlanta, Georgia. Sandy Adams is the pastor there. I think it's called Calvary Chapel. Was it Stone Mountain, Bill? Is that what it's called? And they're coordinating relief efforts there. So if you have any desire to be involved in that or contribute to that, you can go on the Calvary Chapel website and just go to Georgia and look up Stone Mountain. And certainly we can all be praying for them for sure. Now we're going to pick up this week, and Lord willing, we're going to finish up Deuteronomy, and what we're looking at now are the final words of Moses. We've been talking about the fact that Moses is literally hours away, not counting months or years or even days now, but counting hours till he's going to go and be in the presence of Almighty God. And for Moses, that's not a place he was unfamiliar with. Moses was a man who spent time in God's presence while he was on earth, and so for him, it was just going to be an extension of the life he lived here. And that ought to be an encouragement to each one of us, to know that we can have intimate fellowship with the Lord here and now. It doesn't start when we get to heaven, amen? Amen. Heaven's just going to be that we're going to be able to see Him more clearly. We're going to be able to see Him face to face, but we can know Him intimately now. Well, in these final hours, I'm blown away by Moses. I love him. He's such a great example for us in Scripture. But I'm blown away by this man who we know, was disqualified from entering into the land of promise after 40 years of faithfully leading and serving and ministering to a very difficult group of people. A group that whined and moaned and complained and mocked him and mocked God and worshipped golden calves and didn't like the food that God was providing and wanted to go back to Egypt. And I mean, it went on and on and on. And Moses continually interceded for them and ministered to them and was faithful. But we know that Moses blew it. We know that God at one point told him to speak to the rock for water to come out. He smote the rock again destroying a picture of Christ because Jesus was crucified once, only once. And after that, we now speak to him. And that's who the rock represents. And he was smoting the rock yet again. And he was portraying God as being angry. And because of that, the Lord said, okay, Moses, you're not going to enter into the land of promise. Now, Moses at that point could have just taken his ball and gone home. Could have said, you know what? All right, I'm not going in. Fine. I'm done then. You know, 
I'll just sit here and wait till you take me to heaven. I'm, I'm done. You know, I've been serving. I'm 120. Okay, I've been faithful long enough. But, you know, praise God for Moses' heart, and may we learn from it, that his heart was to finish strong. And that's what I titled the message tonight, Finishing Strong. Moses' last hours on earth, instead of pouting and murmuring and bickering and being angry at the people and pointing fingers, instead he leaves by blessing them and continuing to be an example to them up until the very last hour. And I appreciate that, and may we learn a lot from this example tonight. Now last week, we looked at the first half of chapter 33, and we saw it in a message titled, Praising God and Blessing Others, that that was Moses' heart. Moses' heart was, again, not to ridicule them for their disobedience, while he certainly delivered the law and allowed God to, again, bring conviction through the Word. Moses' heart was to encourage and bless them. And so now he's been speaking to the 12 tribes. He taught, we looked at six of them last week. And what he did was he was encouraging them and blessing them and letting them know prophetically what God was going to bless them with in spite of all of their disobedience. They've been disobedient and yet they were going to enter into the land of promise. They've been outside of God's will and God was still going to bless them because he is a God of grace. So let's pick up in verse 18. We're going to look at the last six or so of the tribes. Actually, I think it's five. And after we look at those tribes, then we'll look, we'll look into the last moments of Moses' life in chapter 34. So last week, again, he had already spoken to Reuben and Judah and Levi and Benjamin and Joseph. And now we come to Zebulun, verse 18. And of Zebulun, he said, Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going out, and Issachar in your tents. They shall call the peoples to the mountain. They shall offer sacrifices of righteousness, for they shall partake of the abundance of the seas and the treasures hidden in the sand. Now remember, they have not stepped one foot into the land of promise yet, and he is prophetically encouraging them and letting them know that not only are you going to enter in, but God's going to bless you in a very specific way. And Zebulun was one of the sons, Zebulun and Issachar both were sons of Leah, and they... God's telling them through Moses that he's going to bless them, that they're going to call peoples to the mountains, so that's where they would dwell. And sure enough, if you look at a map of where the 12 tribes settled, they settled near the mountains. They would partake of the abundance of the seas. They became very wealthy as tribes because of the trade that they did upon the Mediterranean. And they were, uh, again, God blessed them. And then lastly it says, and the treasures hidden in the sand. Well, it's interesting that they as tribes received a great deal of things that came out of the ground, pearls and coral and, and dye and even glass that was made out of the sand. Now remember, Moses is talking about something that hasn't happened yet. But as you read this chapter, it's like laying out. It'd be like if they came to us and we're all standing in a big group and they said, okay, all you in this group, you're going to settle by the sea. And you're going to be in a place, and he told you all about it and nailed it down to, this, to the last degree. And that's exactly what Moses is doing here. What it ought to do is be an encouragement to us that God is in control, that God knows everything, he knows every detail, and yes, God's word is prophetic in, again, every way. It is a foretelling of the truth. So Moses, again, he could have been upset with Zebulun and Issachar. He could have been upset with these, again, those who had ridiculed him, but instead... He's pronouncing blessings upon them, a picture of the grace of God. And of Gad, he said, 
Blessed is he who enlarges Gad. He dwells as a lion and tears the, tears the arm and the crown off his head. Now Gad was one of the sons of Zilpah, and he dwells as a lion, it says. Now Gad, as we know, the Gadites, Gadarenes later, were very bold and courageous and ready to go to war. And it says right there that he, will tear, he tears the arms and the crown off his head. Again, they would be those who are very bold, very strong, who would come against the leaders of other great nations. It says there in verse 21. Now here's where he blew it. He provided the first part for himself because of the lawgiver's portion was reserved there. You guys remember as they were entering into the land of promise, you guys remember that the 12 tribes were going in. Remember that they didn't go in initially because they were afraid of the giants in the land. So that entire generation died in the wilderness. Now they come back the next time, and this time, praise God, they're more obedient. They say, okay, we're going to enter into the land. But if you remember, right before they went in, they encountered Sihon and Og, two great kings with great kingdoms, and they wiped them out because God was on their side. They were giants. Now we know that two and a half tribes, including Gad, settled outside of the land of promise. They settled for less than God's highest. And that's what it says here in this verse. He provided the first part for himself. They came in and they conquered this land. It says that it was green and and a great place for cattle. And so they said, you know, why should we go over the Jordan? Why should we go in and fight an enemy if we can just settle outside? The enemy's already already been defeated. Often, like maybe we would say, why would I want to move to a place that's expensive? Why don't I go live where the real estate is cheap? Well, that's okay if that's what God's plan is for you. But you better make sure you hear from God, not just from your real estate agent. Amen? You better make sure that God is leading. And sadly, Gad settled for less than God's highest. They had a great amount of cattle. They were mighty warriors. But when you get to the New Testament, the Gadarenes were raising pigs. Their cows turned to pigs. And when you're a Jew raising pigs, not good. It was an unclean animal. But this is what happens to us when we settle for less than God's highest. But in this context, he's blessing them, he's encouraging them, and letting them know God is going to bless them. He says, he came with his heads of his people. He administered the justice of the Lord, and his judgments were with Israel. The one thing that the gatherings did do, they did indeed go in and help fight some of the battles in the land, but yet they were willing to settle outside of God's highest. Sadly, I think this describes way too many Christians today. Willing to settle for less than God's highest. Willing to just be comfortable as opposed to be, being in the center of God's will. And sadly, that's certainly where Gad ended up. They provided for themselves. They had these fortresses that were already there. It was so much easier just to stay. And of Dan, he said, Dan is a lion's whelp. He shall leap from Bashan. Now Dan uh, is a son of Bilhah. A lion's whelp, this means a lion's cub. And it suggests that Dan, the tribe, was not yet mature. It showed great potential, but had not yet matured. Jacob referred to Dan as a serpent that bites a horse's heels. Dan would grow into, again, a a tribe of great prowess and strength. But you know what? In Judges 17 and 18, it became very idolatrous and it became an apostate tribe. They turned away from God completely. And you know what's interesting? The two things that Dan is referred to as, and here it's called a lion's whelp, and then later again referred to as a serpent. 
A lion and a serpent in the Bible are representations of whom? Of Satan. Right? Now, they're also representations of the Lord because, remember, the serpent was lifted up, but it was really a representation of sin, that he who knew no sin became sin for us. But the Bible also says that Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But sadly, Dan would not experience God's highest either. Verse 23, And of Naphtali, now these are just each individual tribes, And of Naphtali, he said, O Naphtali, satisfied with favor and full of blessing of the Lord, possess the west and the south. Naphtali, again, the son of Bilhah, is promised the fullness of the Lord's blessing. And if you pull out a map, and I did, and you look, guess exactly where they are. They're to the west and to the south of the land of promise. That's where they settled. So again, while you and I look at it, we look back and we see how accurate it is, for them, they were being told before they entered in exactly what God was going to do and exactly how God would lead and guide and direct them. Out of the tribe of Naphtali, there was a mighty man of God by the name of Barak. If any of you guys are study the word. The soldiers of Naphtali, again, were used in a mighty way. And they were part of the mighty men of Gideon as well. Verse 24, And of Asher he said, Asher is the most blessed of sons. Let him be favored by his brothers, and let him dip his foot in oil. Now, what in the world does that mean? Now, Asher, the name means happy. That's what the word name means. It means happy or blessed. Moses prayed that the Lord would bless the tribe with many children and favor his brothers, and give him the favor of his brothers in great prosperity. Now, it's interesting. Let him dip his foot in oil. Well, in those days, that could be a picture of two different things. That there would be abundance in the ground where they settled, but also, what did they use to anoint themselves with? Oil. And he's saying, let them have so much oil that they can dip their whole foot in it. Typically, when they wash themselves, they would just use a sparing amount of oil as a way of cleansing themselves. And he's saying, look, let them be so rich and so blessed. Now, remember, who is he pronouncing these blessings on? The very people that wanted him dead. The very people that rebelled against him. The very people that got mighty men to come against him and were wanting to go back to Egypt. And, and here he is, in his final hours, not cursing, but blessing. And as we talked about last week, prayer or praise as Christians, amen? Either praise comes out of our mouth, or may we pray for Him. If we can't do either one, then be quiet. You know, too often, we want to get our word in. We want to get revenge. We want to get even. But God's heart is always that we reach out in love. It says there, they will have sandals of iron and bronze. In your days, shall, in your days so shall your strength be. Sandals of iron and bronze point to soldiers. What did they wear when they went out into battle? They wore armor. And these sandals of iron and bronze relates again to a warlike disposition. And it says there, as your days are, so shall your strength be, that God would give them the strength necessary for the trials and opposition that they would face. So Moses' prayer is loving and gracious and prophetic. And as he prayed for these very ones who sought to overthrow him, murmured against him, complained against him, And these were the ones that were going into the land, and here he had been a faithful servant of God and was not going to be able to enter in. We can look and say, that just doesn't seem fair. And you know what? Sometimes we look at life, and from our perspective, it doesn't seem fair. But we need to learn to trust that God knows best. Amen? Amen. And that God is faithful, and God is sovereign. He's in control. And we need to learn that, again, while we don't understand, it doesn't matter whether or not we understand, because God does understand. 
And we need that peace that surpasses all understanding. Not the peace that comes from understanding, but peace even when we don't understand. And sadly though, while he pronounces blessing upon them, we know they're going to go into the land of promise. We're going to see it as we get into Joshua and Judges. But you know what? As they go into the land of promise, they're going to start off okay. But it's not going to work out too well. Because sadly, they're going to rebel against the Lord yet again. But his heart here was that, again, he would bless them. He would leave them with blessing, not with cursing. He would not condemn them, but he would show the love of God toward them. You know what? He's correcting a mistake he made before. The mistake he made before was he represented God as being angry and vengeful. And now he's representing God as being gracious and merciful. Which is he? He's gracious and he's merciful. And praise God that Moses indeed is finishing strong. Now look at the greatness of God and the joy of his people in these last few verses before we get to chapter 34. There is no one like the God of Jeshurun. Now I asked you last week, what is Jeshurun? Israel. Praise God. Somebody listened last week. Good. Jeshurun means the upright ones. And this is just another word for Israel. There is no one like the God of Jeshurun. There is no one like the God of Israel who rides the heavens to help you and is and in his excellency on the clouds. Now, who rides the heavens to help you? Our God isn't a dead idol sitting in a temple with no concern for you and details of your life. Have you ever talked to people like that that think that God is up in heaven somewhere and just doesn't have time for you? You know, we're such little infant, you know, we're just little specks of dust in the universe and how could the God who created everything have time for me? And you know what? He's making it very clear. It's exactly the opposite. Our God is so great that He has His eyes on every one of us at all times. He loves you so much, He'd rather die than live without you, and He can't take His eyes off of you. Now, sometimes that's comforting, and other times that's convicting. Amen? The thing about the fact that His eyes are always on you, well, that's good sometimes. When I'm walking in the center of His will, that's great. When I'm going through a difficulty or a trial, that's wonderful. When I'm in rebellion and just walking in my flesh, it's not so good. But actually it is, because it's his way of drawing us back into himself. He rides the heavens to come to the aid of his people. No matter how great the adversary that Israel would face, God would be there instantly in power to deliver the children of Israel. And so too for us. Our God is always near. Our God is always greater than whatever enemy we might face. And He's always quick to come to our side. He's a faithful God. You're not alone. The eternal God is your refuge. And I love this. He's your refuge. Remember we talked about the cities of refuge. It was the safe haven for those who were in sin, for those who were busted, for those who were under judgment. They would run to the city of refuge, and once there, they were safe. And He's our refuge. If we're in the Lord, we've been set free from our sin. He is indeed our refuge. He is the eternal God. And it says there, I love the word eternal because the word there means He always has been, He always will be, He alone is God, and He created all things from nothing. It was more than just intelligent design. Amen? He made it from nothing. That's our God. He took nothing and made something. That doesn't happen with billions of years of chance. It happens when Almighty God puts things in motion. And that's the God who we serve. The eternal God is your refuge. 
And again, the word refuge means dwelling place. It's a place of safety and comfort and peace. It again, is their, he, he is their home. And it says, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Have you ever thought about how big God's arms must be? The Bible says he holds the universe in the span of his hand. The bigger the universe gets, the greater our God is. Amen? They find, we found another galaxy and another, you know, and I'm not really a, an astronomer, but I'll tell you what, when I hear that, I go, God's bigger than Gan yet. Amen? Because no matter how far out it gets, it's farther than that, and he holds it all in the span of his hand. But what's great is, if he holds the universe in the span of his hand, it says here he holds us in his everlasting arms. So if his hands are big, well, how big are his arms? Our God's yoked. Amen? I mean, he's huge. He's, he's, he's yoked. He's greater than we can possibly think. And it's a, it's a blessing, and there's an incredible peace in understanding who it is who holds me in his arms. He held Israel in his arms. He holds you and I in his arms. We have nothing to fear. There's no enemy so great. Our God created everything. He holds what we think is awesome and powerful in the span of his hand. He's spoken into existence, and he holds us in his everlasting arms. What an encouragement. These are words that Moses is leaving them with. He will thrust out the enemy before you and will say, destroy. Now, it's interesting to me that people often will say, well, God would never, or Jesus would never, bomb anybody or destroy anybody. Jesus would never do that. Really? Have you read the Bible? Ask Sodom and Gomorrah if God would rain down judgment. Ask any of the enemies that got in the way of the children of Israel and were propagating paganism, how well it worked out when they came against Almighty God. Now, I want to say this. And I'm, I'm going to get political for a second. And you know what? God bless you, all right? I don't do this very often. If you've been coming, you know what? You know what? I think what we've done in Iraq is a good thing. Let me tell you why. There were people there that were under bondage. They could never worship Almighty God. Saddam Hussein was a, out of control, slaughtering his own people. And we went over there and, again, set them free. Now, at a high price from us. It cost us a great deal to do it. The analogy I use with my son is if someone's down the street with a machete slaughtering people, do I run down there and help or not? But he might swing it at me. It doesn't make any difference. And the point is that there are people that are now have the freedom to worship in Iraq that never did before, so praise God. Amen? And he says here that there's going to be enemies that come against God, and he says, when they come, I'm with you. Now, I want to say this. I want to make sure I'm on God's side. How about you? Amen? And I say as a nation, we need to make sure, and again, Israel is in rebellion, but I want to be on Israel's side. Why? Because God is on Israel's side even though they're in rebellion. We see it right here. He's pronouncing grace upon Zebulun. He's pronouncing grace upon Issachar. He's pronouncing grace upon Reuben, and they're in rebellion because our God is a God of grace, and he's not done with them yet. Amen? And I know this is not popular in Santa Cruz at all. It's just not. But that's okay. It's not about being popular. It's about being obedient. It's not about being you know, popular with men, but faithful to Almighty God. Do I think bad things have happened in Iraq? No doubt. But do I believe that God can use even this for His glory? And should we not be supportive of them? Absolutely. 100%. Amen? That's God's heart, and it ought to be ours. And He says there, look what He says. 
He will thrust out the enemy before you and will say destroy. When they will go into the land of promise, they're going to face paganism. They're going to face idol worshipers. And God's going to tell them, destroy them. But that just doesn't seem right. You know what? God will not just destroy people having given them no opportunity. Destruction comes when rebellion will not cease. Destruction comes when we reject His love, reject His grace, reject His mercy. God doesn't send men to hell. Men send themselves there by continuing to reject the grace and the love and the mercy of God. His desire is that none should perish. No, not one. Amen? My heart is to see Iraqis come to Christ. That's what's most important. Amen? My heart is to see the people down the street come to the Lord. And he says there will be times when he will have to go in. And again, he says he will say destroy. Then Israel shall dwell in safety and the fountain of Jacob alone in the land of grain and new wine. His heavens shall also drop dew. You know what? This will indeed be a land flowing with milk and honey. When you enter in, God's going to be on your side. He's going to wipe out the giants in the land that the previous generation once feared. But once you enter in, you need to understand that I'm with you. God's going to bless you. And then he says in verse 29, Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty. Your enemies shall submit to you, and you shall tread down their high places. You know what? Happy are you. Why? Because God has saved you. Because God protects you. Because God fights for you. Because you, again, have nothing to fear. Your enemies will be defeated by the hand of God. Now, he's speaking to the children of Israel and says, Happy are you. Because you are a saved people. Guess what? Happy are we because we are a saved people. Amen? That eternal perspective, understanding of God is for us, who can be against us. Again, that God is on my side, that my best friend created the heavens and the earth. That he's not just distant, far away God, but he's daddy. He's Abba Father, who I can draw near to. Oh, how happy we ought to be. Amen? There ought to be joy. We're going to see this in Galatians 5. In a couple Sundays, again, where we're going to see that, that that's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. I say it a lot, I know, but I'll say it again. It grieves me to see Christians walking around down in the mouth. Because you know what? As Christians, with an eternal perspective, there's nothing to be down about. When we have an eternal perspective, though he slay me, yet will I trust him, is what Job said after he lost his family, his fortune, his health, everything. You know what? Sometimes it's not until Jesus is all we have that we realize that Jesus is all we need. Oh, how happy are you, Israel? Because God is on your side, and He's a faithful God, and He alone is God, and He's a great and an awesome God. And no matter how outnumbered we may feel sometimes living in this country, and no matter how many may turn away from God, our God is greater still. And we're on the right side. You plus God is the majority. Amen? If you bless God and remember that, and he says that the sword of your majesty, your enemies shall submit to you, and you shall tread down the high places. What are the high places? He's telling them when you go into the land and you see the pagan idolatry that's been set up there, tear it down. Why did they need to tear it down? Because he knew the children of Israel, if they didn't tear it down, they soon would be worshiping it. He knew their hearts. So he said when you see the idolatry, tear it down remove it take away the temptation guys gals this is what we need to do about our things that tempt us to sin we need to remove them we don't 
oh, well, I'm, you know, I'm getting stronger in my faith. It's okay. I can have that there, and it just won't bother me. You know, you're stronger than me then. Because you know what? We need to remove it. The Bible says to flee youthful lust. Flee those things that would cause us to fall. And sadly, that temptation did come. And as we know, ultimately, they fell into that sin because they did not destroy all the high places as God has called them to. They fell into prostitution and drunkenness and idol worship. And in the end, they began to worship these false gods. And before you knew it, they sank lower and lower into the pit of sin. And, bef- and then what did God do? He drug them away yet again into captivity. Why did it happen? Because of their disobedience. When we're obedient, God is glorified, we get blessed. When we walk in disobedience and rebellion, sin has consequences. It's not contradicting the the sermon on Sunday that it's by grace we've been saved, that Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. That's true. But you know what? Our actions still have consequences. Amen? They still have consequences every time. Now we're moving into this last moment of Moses' life. He's about to walk up Mount Nebo. And as we come to this final chapter, these are the final words, not just of this chapter, or not just of this book, but of the Pentateuch. Pentateuch means five books. It is the law of Moses. And when people say the law of Moses, they're referring to the first five books of the Bible. Now the law itself includes all the law and prophets, but the law of Moses is the first five books of the Bible. These are Moses' final words. This is how Moses is going to finish up. How, how is he going to finish? Is he going to pout and moan and complain and murmur and question God and say it hasn't been fair and how come the murmurs get to go in and I don't? Or is he going to finish strong? Let's take a look and watch this man who... Man, Moses, just for a second here. Moses, think about this guy. What an incredible life he lived. What, a, what a, an awesome example for us. Moses started off as an Egyptian prince. We'll talk about this at the end. But he started off as an Egyptian prince, and then he ended up murdering somebody, having a burden for his Jewish people, the children of Israel. He had to flee for his life. He ends up on the backside of the desert, no doubt thinking this is the end, and we're going to talk about that as well. And then lastly, he ends up being the deliverer called by God. What an incredible 120 years. Each of them in sets of 40. 40 in the Bible is a number of testing. And now Moses is drawing to the very last moments of his life. How is Moses going to finish? You know what? Moses is going to finish strong, but it also, Moses was a man who it took 80 years of preparation to prepare him for 40 years of ministry. I find it interesting that Jesus was 30 years old before he started his public ministry, and he's God, right? He had 30 years of preparation for three years of ministry. We're bummed if we have to have three weeks of preparation for 30 years of ministry. Man, I've been going to that Bible college for like three weeks now. I don't understand why I don't have my own church. You know what I mean? And too often, we have this thing where we just think, you know, man, it's just got to happen. And God's got a plan. And God's, we need to be patient. Amen? And we need to just be following the Lord and trusting Him. And Moses is a great example. Moses was linked directly to the law. And we're, as we're going to see, he's also a very clear picture of Christ. He's been referred, he was referred to as the greatest of the prophets and a man who's had both a high calling and heavy responsibility. And though he was largely faithful and obedient, we know that because of his disobedience, he missed out on God's highest. You know, I love that he still, in spite of it all, will finish strong. And what we're going to see in these last 
12 verses is a warning to be heeded, and then after a warning to be heeded, we're also going to see an example to follow. So a warning to be heeded and an example to follow. We're going to learn from both Moses' shortcomings and then we're going to learn from Moses' obedience. So let's begin in verse 1, looking again at finishing strong the death of Moses. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo at the top of Pisgah, which is across from Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, and the, the south and the plain of all the valley of Jericho, and the city of the palm trees as far as Zoar. Here's what happened. Moses' time is, is down to the end. Now I want you to notice, and we'll see it in another verse, that Moses is not weak and feeble. It's not because he's physically worn out that he's not going to be used by God anymore. He climbs a mountain. He's 120, and he's climbing a mountain. I have a hard time. I'm 42, and I have a hard time climbing a mountain, right? He's climbing a mountain, and then God does something supernatural, and I love the grace of God, that even though he's not going to enter into the land of promise, he supernaturally allows him, standing on this mountaintop, just a few miles from the land of promise, to look out and behold the entire land. Now, there's some question as to whether or not this is even possible apart from a supernatural act of God, to be able to see that great distance. But God allowed him to see it all, to see the very lands he had just encouraged and blessed each of the tribes with. He was able to look out and see this land flowing with milk and honey, to see this great and awesome promise that God had made. And then not only does he get to look into the land, but now look what it says. And the Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have caused you to see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. So not only does he show it to him, but he reminds him of his promise. No doubt he stood there looking at the land in awe, and in wonder, and God spoke to, to Moses and swore that his descendants would still be blessed by this land. God is faithful to his promises even when we're rebellious. Aren't you glad? God's still going to fulfill his promise even though Moses blew it. God's will is going to be done with or without us. Did you know that? God's not hoping we, oh, I hope those guys come through or my will is not going to be done. Right? Right. Praise God, you can look at the book of Revelation and we can see the end and we win. Amen? Because God is faithful. Even if we're disobedient. Now, at the same time, I say, well, then I can just disobey and God still get His will done. That's good. I'll just go live my life. Here's the thing. You go live your life, you're going to miss out on God's blessings. You're going to miss out on being a part of God's will. You're going to miss out, you're going to suffer the consequences of your rebellion but God's will will be done. You know what? God's will is going to be done. I sure want to be a part of it. How about you? God's going to do great and awesome things. Lord, let me be in the front row. Use me. Here I am, Lord. Use me. Let me be a part of it. But again, he says to him as a reminder, but you shall not cross over. Now, Moses had been faithful in service. Let me remind you quickly of some of the things Moses had done. He had faced Pharaoh and the great Egyptian army. He delivered the people out of bondage. He delivered the law to the people. He led them through the wilderness. He interceded with God on their behalf. And in spite of all Moses had done, he would not enter in. Why not? 
Numbers 20, he smote the rock. Now again, we might think that's a small thing. You know what? Moses had the highest position of any man on earth. What did he do? He represented God to the people and the people to God. He delivered the law. He was God's spokesman. And so when you have a high calling, there's also high responsibility. The Bible says, let not many of you be teachers. Because with that gifting comes a high amount of responsibility. You're going to stand, I will stand before God for every word that comes out of my mouth when I'm teaching the word. Don't tell me that doesn't keep me with fear and trembling. Because it does. Every time I teach, I'm, I'm just crying out, Lord, for the sake of your people, help. Please. Lord, not my words, thy words. And you know what? Imagine being Moses. He's the only one. There's lots of pastors. There was one Moses. And he'd raised up elders and he'd raised up Joshua. But you know what? Because he was the one who represented God to the people, because he is the one that came down from the mountain with his face glowing, those are great blessings and great privileges that came with great responsibility. And so when Moses misrepresented God, game over. He said, you know what? I still love you. You're still my son, but you're not going to enter in. Why? Because you made the people think that I'm an angry God when I'm a loving God. You made the people, you made it appear like you were doing them a favor in your flesh when I was the one who was going to pour out my blessings upon them. He was, again, misrepresenting God's heart toward the people. He even had some intention there. Like, he even says at one point, do we have to bless you? Talking about himself and Aaron. Do we have to give water to you? Do we have to bless you? You've got nothing to do with it. We don't bless people God does. Amen? We might be the tool God uses, but God is the one who pours out the blessing. So you might say again, was the punishment too harsh? No, because he's the law, he was the lawgiver, the deliverer, the leader of the nation. And again, with that great privilege came great responsibility. And for his sin, Moses would suffer chastening, godly discipline. And again, while God does forgive our sin, our sin still has consequences. God is a God of grace and mercy, and He forgives, but He's a God of government who allows our works and our sin to have consequences. Now look at Moses' epitaph. How, do they, how is Moses referred to? What's an epitaph? It's what they'd write on your tombstone. I can think of no greater thing to have written on your tombstone than these next words said of Moses. So Moses, the what? Servant of the Lord. I like that. It doesn't say Moses, the prince of Egypt. Moses, the murderer of the Egyptian. Moses, the shepherd in the wilderness. Moses, the spokesman for a nation. Moses, the miracle worker. Moses, the prophet. Moses, the man who saw God's glory. Moses, who rebelled in the wilderness and couldn't enter in. It was neither the bad nor the good. What it was very simply was Moses the servant of the Lord. There can be no greater thing said of any of us than to say that we are servants of the Lord. What a great thing to be said. And you know what? This should be enough for us. It should be enough to be God's servant. That should be sufficient. That should be plenty. To be satisfied, again, with being a servant of the Lord is a precious place to be. It's the happiest of all stations in life because you know what? When the master is glorified, the servants are satisfied. When the master is glorified, we ought to be satisfied. 
As long as God's glorified, who cares if anybody knows what I had to do with it? Who cares? It's irrelevant. As long as God is glorified. That's what it's all about. And again, the true servant is demonstrated by how they respond when someone treats you like one. Are you a servant? Have someone treat you like one and see how you respond. Then you'll know. Now that guy's treat me like I'm a slave. Isn't that what you are? Well, not really. Schools of ministry. Gail Irwin says they ought to call them schools of slavery, but nobody would sign up. Because that's what ministry is. A pastor is an under rower, chief servant. That's what he is. The people don't serve the pastor. The pastor serves the people. I want to be a slave. What do you want to do when you grow up? I want to be a slave. I'm looking forward to getting, I'm, I'm applying for the school of slavery. I really hope I get in. And you know, so often we've got it all turned around. We measure success by how many people serve us, and God measures it by how many people we serve. And what he's saying here is Moses, the servant of the Lord, not the servant of his flesh, not the servant of the world, but the servant of the Lord. And look what it says. Died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. Moses died not because he gave out physically, but by the sentence of God as punishment for his sin. Again, sin, though forgiven, still has consequences. Moses Time was cut short, although it was foreordained before the foundation of the world, God knew when it was going to happen. And it happened exactly as God said that it would. By the way, Moses knew the time was coming. You know why? Because death is an appointment, not an accident. The Bible says that appointed for man once to live and then to die and then the judgment. Nobody dies by accident. Whose arms are you being held in? His everlasting arms. So, whoops, I turned away and the bus ran through the stoplight and killed Dave. Whoops, I should have been paying it. That doesn't happen with God, amen? I'm in His everlasting arms. Nothing happens unless God allows it. So that means that nobody's life was cut short. It means I lived exactly as long God, as God wanted me to. And as Christians, with an eternal perspective, remember that death is not a thing to be feared, but a thing to be embraced. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Guys, you know, I did a funeral not too long ago for a guy that was my worship leader in my youth group. He died, he was 30 years old, and people were talking about how tragic it was. And then he gets up, and he's sharing his testimony via video, talking about how excited he was to see Jesus face to face. And I'm thinking, now wait a minute, who got the short end of the stick? We're still here. He's looking at the Lord right now. There's no more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more death. We're like, oh, it's so tragic. He has to be in the presence of Almighty God. How tragic. How tragic getting to get to stay down here and deal with disease and suffering and torment and pain anymore. Poor guy, right? No, we're here as long as God wants us to be. Let's be faithful while we're here. Moses' days were numbered by God. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab. Who buried Moses? God did. I like that. God buried Moses. That's great. That's good stuff. And it says there, opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows his grave to this day. Now, why do you think that God would want to bury Moses and have nobody know where his grave was? They'd be worshiping him in a minute, wouldn't they? 
People die and we want to make them saints. Right? Well, he died. You know, he would be instant sainthood. You've got to perform some miracles. We saw Moses do that. Right? And you've got to have done this and done this. Saint Moses. Let's build the Saint Moses Cathedral. And let's start worshiping Moses. Let's get a statue of him and kiss his feet and go by and touch his bones. And God said, I'm burying him quick. And I don't want anybody to know where he is. Because they're idol worshipers and they'll start worshiping him. You know, and it's, it breaks the heart of God. By the way, people don't die to become saints. When you're born again, you become a saint. Amen. You're either a saint or an ain't. Amen? You've been born again or you haven't. And sainthood has nothing to do with our good works, but his good work. That's what makes us saints. And so he buries him. Now, it's interesting. I don't have time to go into it. But in Jude, there's a battle that takes place for Moses' body between Michael and Lucifer. And it's interesting that Michael's name means, who is like God? And Satan said, I will be like God. So you've got, who, will be, who is like God, battling with, I will be like God. And people wonder, why would Lucifer want Moses' body? It could be that he knew they would worship him. Oh, let me get his body out. And, you know, let's, let's set him up and we can have them all worship Moses and they'll forget about God. Let's have them worship Mary, and they'll forget about God. Let's have them worship Paul and Peter and, you know, anybody else so they can forget about God. May we worship God alone. Amen? Amen. Everybody else is a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. And, and so Lucifer, again, fought with them. We know in the end, guess who won? Michael. And by the way, who's going to cast Satan into the pit? Michael. Satan is not the opposite of God. He's, no, he's, he's so pales in comparison to God, he's nowhere near being great enough to be the opposite of him. Amen? He holds the world in the span of his hand. Satan does not. God is all-knowing. Satan is not. God is omnipresent. Satan is not. He's a created being who fell. If he's the opposite of anybody, it's Michael, the archangel, and Michael can whip him. It's in the Bible. He can whip him. So, again, while we sometimes give Satan too much credit, sometimes, you know, or not enough credit, you know, hey, he's real, he's roaring lions, so you may devour, it's a spiritual battle, but he's a defeated foe. Amen? He's defeated. Game over. Satan, you lose. That's it. Verse 7, Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. Man, I wish I could say that at 42. I got these glasses right here, and I've got to get another prescription because these are not strong enough. When I was 30, I had pilot's vision. Twelve years later, I'm blind. Twelve more years, I'm going to be up here with a magnifying glass. And his eyes did not dim at 120. He still was vigorous. He still had great strength. Why? Because, again, God was using him in a mighty and a powerful way. 120 years. 40 years as the prince of Egypt. 40 years as a humble shepherd in the wilderness. And then 40 years leading the children of Israel. And again, he didn't have to have, you know, surgery to have good vision. God kept it intact. And the children of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. So the days of the weeping and mourning for Moses ended. They wept for Moses 30 days. They ridiculed him for 40 years. Then they wept for him for 30 days. Isn't it amazing how that works? Isn't it amazing how people will go to a funeral of a person they can't stand and get them to talk about how great they were for an hour? 
It's amazing. Somebody dies and all of a sudden they're wonderful. I've never been to a funeral and have anybody get them go, you know, that guy was a jerk. I've never seen that happen. It's never happened. People get up and talk about how wonderful is the, mo the most kind and gracious person I've ever met in my life. I'm thinking, man, I need to meet these people before they die because I just never, ha you know, and it's amazing. So here's Moses, and again, I do believe that they understood what a great man Moses was because of what God had done through him. And they wept and they mourned for 30 days. And traditionally, it was only for seven, and they mourned for 30 days. But I want you to see something here. It says, and the, mo and, and the mourning for Moses ended. You know what that means? Life went on without Moses. No man is irreplaceable. Life will go on without Billy Graham. Great, mighty man of God, used mightily by the Lord. Praise God for Billy Graham. Life will go on after he dies. Life will go on after Chuck Smith passes away. If you don't know who he is, he's a, he was the founder of Calvary Chapel Movement. God has used him mightily. And, and, I, you know, and I, I'm selfish. I'm like, Lord, keep him here another 20 years. But here's the good news. Chuck Smith's not the head of Calvary Chapel. Jesus Christ is, and he still will be after Chuck dies. And the torch will be passed. And it says, the mourning for Moses ended. And they had to press on. And God raised up another in his place. Again, same God doing the work, but now using a different vessel. Lastly, an example to follow. Let's finish up. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the children of Israel heeded him and did as the Lord commanded Moses. Joshua, the son of Nun, he took Moses' place. Moses finished well because not only did he continue to bless the people, but he raised up a successor. Moses gave ministry away. When Moses was up on Sinai, there was only one other person anywhere on that mountain. Who was it? Joshua. Joshua. When they fought the Amalekites, who was out when Moses was lifting up his hand? Who was out there with a sword fighting the battle? Joshua. Joshua was the one that Moses invested in. Joshua was the one that he laid hands upon. He gave ministry away to. He identified his gift. The word there for the spirit of wisdom, that could be, could be a reference to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was upon Joshua. Now we know typologically Joshua had to bring them into the land of promise because Moses is a type of the law and Joshua's name is also Jesus and only Jesus can bring us in. The law can bring us there and see our need for a Savior, but only the Lord can bring us in. And because he had poured out his hand upon him, the children of Israel heeded his words. They saw that Moses recognized his calling, so the people recognized it as well. Moses gave away the ministry. He didn't pout or rebel. He finished strong. Verse 10. But since there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. There's not arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses. Jo Joshua was capable. He was called. But he didn't have the legacy that Moses had. Now, does that mean that, Moses, that Joshua was a less? No. It just means that Moses had a higher calling. Because Moses had several unique things about him. We'll finish up with these. He saw the Lord face to face. Remember that he didn't get to see him full on, because what would have happened? He would have died. The Lord said, you can't see my full glory, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. I'll cover you with my hand. And when I pass by, I'll let you see my backside. And when he came down, he was glowing, having caught any, a glimpse of the backside of God. That's pretty awesome. Amen? That's pretty unique. 
I haven't seen anybody else glowing like that. Amen? That's unique about Moses. All the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt before Pharaoh, before all his servants in all of his land. He also was unique in that God used him to do the miraculous, the plagues upon Egypt, parting of the Red Sea. Moses was unique in the number and kind of works he was associated with. Verse 12, And by all the mighty power and all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. Moses was unique in the power and the authority that God had given him to lead Israel. Moses was uniquely called, used by God to do great and awesome things. He indeed was the greatest of all the prophets, and he's an example for others to follow. But here's the last thing I want to close with. Following Moses' example is is what we're called to do. Why? Because he followed the Lord. We only can follow men as they follow the Lord. And what I want to leave you with is this, that Moses was not only a great prophet, but he really is a type or a picture of Christ. I wrote all these down, and I think there's a lot more I could have written down. Like Jesus, Moses was born into a godly home during difficult time for the Jewish people, and his life was threatened. When Moses was born, there was an edict out to do what? Kill all Jewish babies. When Jesus was born, they were called to kill all the Jewish babies. Moses left the treasures of Egypt and went into the wilderness. Jesus left the treasures of heaven and came to earth. Moses, like Jesus, was rejected by his people the first time he came. Israel rejected Jesus at his first coming, but when he comes again, guess what? They're going to receive him this time. Moses had intimate fellowship with God, and Jesus spoke directly to him. Moses had the heart of a shepherd toward the children of Israel, and Jesus is the good shepherd. Moses interceded on behalf of his people. The Bible tells us that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us daily. Moses delivered the word of God to to God's people, and Jesus is the word of God delivered to God's people. Amen? A few more. Moses delivered Egypt out of Egyptian, or the Israel out of Egyptian bondage. Jesus delivered you and I out of the bondage to sin. Moses was meek. Jesus said, I am meek and lowly of heart. Moses' ministry began after 40 years in the desert. Jesus' public ministry began after being tempted for 40 days in the wilderness. You think, you think all this stuff's by chance? There's no way in the Bible. Jesus' face shone on the Mount of Transfiguration. By the way, who was on the Mount of Transfiguration with him? Moses and Elijah. Law and the prophets, right? So Jesus' face shone on the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses' face shone when he came down from Mount Sinai. Moses finished the work that God had given him, as did our Savior upon the cross when he said, it is finished. Now, here's what I want to encourage you with. Remember that God called Moses when he thought he had already missed out on God's highest. Moses spent 40 years watching sheep. You ever been to a petting zoo? You ever spend any time around sheep? I'm thinking 40 minutes would be about enough. 40 years watching sheep in the wilderness. He thought, no doubt, God's done with me. He's passed me by. I'm too old. My chance was when I was prince. But you know what? The time as a prince was only preparation for what God had next. Some of the things that we've been through, we think that was the opportunity. It's all preparation for what God has next. 
He thought the rest of his life was going to be spent watching sheep. But God knew that he was going to be a shepherd over men. He was a lonely shepherd who no doubt thought that he was of no value to God. But it's in that very desert time that was preparation for what God had next. You may feel like God won't use you. Moses was a stuttering shepherd. Did you know that? A stuttering shepherd. I want you to be my spokesman. What? I can't even talk. I stutter. All I got is a stick. I don't have a chariot anymore. You want me to go down? and I can't do it. Those are the people that God can use. You know what? God wants to use each and every one of us, you guys. You may think that the opportunity to be used by God passed you by. But if you're still breathing, God's not through with you. Amen? Remember, he was out there with the sheep, and what did he see? A burning bush. And he went up to the burning bush, and God spoke to Moses and said, I'm going to use you. May you and I be looking for the burning bush. Amen? May you and I be looking for, okay, Lord, how do you want to use me? You're not through with me. May that be our heart. May we be attentive to the voice of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. And we thank you for the example of Moses. Because, Lord, it ultimately points to you, to your son. And, Lord, I just thank you for the love and the grace that you've exhibited toward us. May we have that same love and grace toward the world around us. Lord, may we see our trials as preparation for ministry, not as times of great suffering. May we realize, Lord, that you hold us in your everlasting arms. The Lord, we're not alone in the midst of the trials and the difficulty, but you're a faithful God. Lord, we so want to walk in the center of your will. Lord, we want to know your heart. Help us to be obedient to you, not worried about being popular with men. So Lord, we love you, we praise you, we worship you. You're a great and awesome God. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.